there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. You are loved with an everlasting love. That's what the Bible says, and underneath are the everlasting arms. Those of you that listen to my radio program know that that's, those are the opening words each time. And one mother wrote to me and told me that her little four-year-old boy had memorized them, and he not only went around saying all of that, but then he went on to say, this is your friend Elizabeth Elliot. <laughs> I'm so thrilled to be in a place where old hymns are sung. It happens very, very rarely. And especially my favorite old hymns. I particularly love the verse in Crown Him With Many Crowns. It says, Crown Him the Son of Man, who every grief hath known that wrings the human breast, and takes and bears them for his own, that all in him may rest. That reminds me of what George MacDonald said about suffering. He said, Christ suffered not that we might not suffer, but that our suffering might be like his. He takes and bears them for his own, that all in him may rest. And suffering is an integral part of what it means to be human. Sometimes people say to me, why do you have to talk about suffering so much? Well, because there's an awful lot of it around, and it is the way in which God gets through to us so often. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, pain is God's megaphone. He whispers to us in our joys, speaks to us in our conscience, and shouts to us in our pain. And I think we all would testify to the truth of that. We're not paying a whole lot of attention to God when everything's going just wonderfully well. It's when things are not going well that all of a sudden our automatic reaction is, oh God, and we turn to him. And even the atheist sometimes forgets himself and, and says something like that. I do want you to, before you forget everything that I've said today, and that will be very soon, ask God, or just make a note for yourself, to ask God what, what he wants you to learn in your particular kind of difficulty today. Some of you are probably suffering deep pain and many of you are not. You might be thinking that your little cares are so trivial as not to deserve the word suffering, and that's why I said I wish I could think of a word that would be more comprehensive and not quite so daunting. But I do believe that literally everything that doesn't go exactly according to our wishes is God's voice speaking to us. If Lars and I find that a flight has been canceled or that instead of having a one-hour layover, we have a five-hour layover, 
that is not according to the way I like things. I like everything to be organized and on the on the button, and I like things to be predictable and manageable and routine. Um, I love monotony and routine, and I don't want any surprises. I'm like Archie Bunker. I remember when there was one show where Edith and whatever the daughter's name was, they had cooked up some fantastic casserole for breakfast, and he was disgusted because he didn't get his bacon and eggs. And Edith says, but Archie, it's a, it's a bright new taste surprise. And he says, what I don't need for breakfast is any bright new taste surprises. So whatever the surprise is in your life that you really didn't ask for, I do believe God wants to say something to you through it. He wants to teach you something. Is it trust? Is it obedience? Is it fruitfulness? Is it that you may know him? Or what is it? One man or woman made holier through suffering makes a difference in the life of the world. That is my message today. One person, one man or woman, made holier through suffering makes a difference in the life of the world. I don't think it's up to us to detect or define what that difference is necessarily. The kingdom of God, the Bible says, is without observation. The kingdom of God is like yeast and like salt, which are two things that work in hidden ways. It's not necessarily up to you to figure out how God is going to make a difference through your life. But the presence of holy people, and none of us has reached the stage of, of the holiness that God commands. He says, be holy, for I am holy. And we're all in that process. But the holier we are, the more profound that difference is going to be. And we have to be made perfect through suffering. Why? Well, the Bible tells me that Jesus himself was made perfect through suffering. He learned obedience through suffering. There's a mystery there, isn't there? He came to do the Father's will, and he was able to say, I do always those things that please the Father. And yet, in the book of Hebrews, we read that he learned obedience not through the things that he enjoyed, but through the things that he suffered. That's what it says. So if I'm going to be a follower of my master, Jesus Christ, it would be very fatuous for me to imagine that I would be able to tread some other path than the one he trod. The path of suffering is the one through which he leads us. And Jesus says in John 6, the bread that I will give is my body, and I give it for the life of the world. And there is a mysterious sense in which you and I are permitted also to be bread for the life of the world. We are meant to be broken bread and poured out wine. 
Now, the making of bread involves the grinding of wheat, doesn't it? And long before that, it involves death. Jesus said, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. That waving field of golden grain testifies to millions of deaths. The deaths of the seed. And then when the grain is harvested, it has to be ground to a powder. And then it's put into hot fire to be baked. And then it is broken in order to feed us. And that is exactly what we Christians, every single one of us, is meant to be. We're meant to be broken bread. Or we could use the metaphor of poured out wine, which also involves the crushing of grapes and the death of the vine. So all of the four effects of suffering that I mentioned in my first talk, knowledge, trust, obedience, and fruitfulness, represent changes in individual human lives, don't they? And they are sanctifying and conforming us into the image of Christ. And that is one of the primary reasons for suffering. Most of you probably know Romans 8.28 that says, everything that happens fits into a pattern for good to them that love God and to them who are called according to his purpose. Everything that happens fits into a pattern for good. And then it goes on to tell us in verse 29, a verse not nearly so familiar, what God's purpose is in allowing things in our lives which we don't see can possibly work into any pattern for good. And his purpose is that we should be shaped to the image of his son. I don't know if there are any sculptors in this room. I'm not one, and I know next to nothing about sculpturing. But if you're going to make a marble statue, it's going to take a hammer and a chisel and a file. And some of God's dealings with me, I feel, have been hammer blows. And some of them have been the chipping away of the chisel. And some of them are just that filing that has to file off the rough edges. And there are still plenty of those that God is working on. And I'm sure that my three husbands were the file in God's hand in, in some ways. And let me just say parenthetically here that I'm very grateful for all three of them. I didn't deserve any of them. And I obeyed my mother. And I didn't go after any of them. <laughs> and. Uh, each one has worked on various aspects of my character and personality. And if you think I'm hard to get along with now, you should have met me before either one of the, before any of the three started to work on me. But Laura still has a long way to go. And I'm thankful. Anyway, that's just one of the areas. And whoever we have to live with, we're going to have a few little difficulties with, right? and they might even have one or two with us. As I try to remind young women when they're contemplating marriage, remember that you marry a sinner. There isn't anything else to marry. <laughs> and when you think that your husband is being particularly sinful, remember that he married a sinner too. There wasn't anything else for him to marry. So you're stuck with each other, a sinful man and a sinful woman who are supposed to get, get along for 365 days a year. 
And in order to do that, it's going to take a lot of amazing grace. <laughs> so God, in his grace and in his mercy, gives us the hammer blows and the chisel chips and the filing. He gives us his word through his megaphone of pain so that we may know him, that we may trust him, that we may obey him, and that we, we may be fruitful. And all of those things are going to matter in the rest of the world. Those, are, those things will make a difference. Now think of the people that have made a difference in your life. I'm sure that if we had time, we could hear some wonderful testimonies of those people, perhaps totally hidden from the world and unknown, who have influenced your life. I can think of dozens of people to whom I owe a tremendous debt. I have written about and spoken about and often quoted my spiritual mother, Amy Carmichael, whom I never met because she was in India for 53 years without a furlough and died in 1950. But I think of her as one of those who deeply influenced significantly, permanently influenced my life. She was a woman who suffered. And I think that most of you would find that the people that have most deeply influenced you have been people who have suffered in some way or other and have responded in faith. That's the great thing. As I said earlier this morning, a tragedy is not going to make a saint out of you. But it's the response. James says, when all kinds of trials and temptations come into your lives, my brothers, don't resent them as intruders, but welcome them as friends. Remember that they come to test your faith and to produce in you the quality of endurance. And when that endurance is fully developed, you will find that you will become men of mature character with the right sort of independence. It is a lifelong process that God is working on, that we might be like Jesus, conformed to the image of his son. Could any of us desire anything higher and better than to be like Jesus? I'm sure that Job's testimony has affected many of your lives. Read the book of Job when you're in the bottom of the barrel or on the ash heap or in the pits and find that there was never a second when God was not paying attention to him and yet he didn't feel as though God was. Read the 23rd Psalm, which we've just heard sung. Read Paul's letters telling about his own sufferings and his joy Philippians is called the Joy Epistle and was written, of course, while he was not only in prison, but it is believed was chained between two guards 24 hours a day. There was never a minute when he wasn't chained to two people. I can't think of any greater misery than that. So he, the joy came out of that suffering. Now, in my book, A Path Through Suffering, you will find an appendix which has a list of some of the scripture references, not by any means an exhaustive list, but there are four categories of reasons why we suffer, and they are 
First, for our own sake, which is what we've been talking about. Secondly, we suffer for the sake of God's people. Third, we suffer for the world's sake. And fourth, we suffer for Christ's sake. And under those headings, there are 28 different reasons for suffering with the scripture references that go along with them. But as I say, it's not exhaustive. You'll probably find many scriptures that I have not included there. So I want for us particularly to think now about suffering for the sake of God's people. And we do not know how our particular suffering is going to be of any use to anybody else. There's a passage in 1 Peter 4, which I happened, and it wasn't, it wasn't just an accident, I'm sure, that I was reading it in my first year as a missionary. When I was living in the, east, in the western jungle of Ecuador, this was before I was engaged to Jim Elliott working with the Colorado Indians. And I was reading this passage and praying one morning early when, well, I'll read you the verse. 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13. My dear friends, do not be bewildered by the fiery ordeal that is upon you as though it were something extraordinary. It gives you a share in Christ's sufferings, and that is cause for joy. And when his glory is revealed, your joy will be triumphant. And as I read those words, I heard gunshots. There was nothing unusual about gunshots in that area of the jungle. We lived in a small clearing where there were about six or eight houses where white people, Spanish-speaking Latins, lived. But in the jungle around us lived the Indians. And both the white folks and the Indians hunted with guns. So we heard gunshots quite often. But on this particular day, just as I read those verses, I heard the gunshots. And then the, the gunshots were followed by screaming and people running and horses galloping through the clearing and general pandemonium. I raced outside, figured my prayers could wait, um, God could wait. And I discovered that Macadio, the man who had been working with me on the reduction to writing of that unwritten language, had just been shot to death. And of course, my first thought was, why, Lord, would you allow a thing like this to happen? This is the only man in the world that speaks both Spanish and Colorado. The Colorados, of course, spoke their language and very, very little Spanish in order to get along in the, in the shops of the white man. But there was nobody else but Macario that spoke both languages fluently. And I had had to learn Spanish because it's the national language of the country. So he and I were able to work bilingually rather than monolingually. And here he was dead with a big hole in his head. Do not think it strange. Do not be bewildered, the Bible says, by the fiery trial that is to try you, as though some strange thing happened. It happens. And what could be a more clear and unequivocal statement of why? To give you a share in Christ's sufferings. Now, do you understand that? I don't. I wouldn't claim to understand how in the world it's possible for us ordinary human beings, finite and sinful, to be given a share in Christ's sufferings. 
But there is a minuscule, perhaps infinitesimal way in which God permits us by his mercy, by his love, by his grace to enter into an understanding of something about the sufferings of Christ in order for what? That I may know him. And Paul said he had suffered the loss of everything. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Now all of us, I suppose, would like to know God if it didn't also involve the condition of the power of his resurrection, which cannot possibly be known without the fellowship of his sufferings. But the three things are there together. We cannot know him without entering also into his sufferings. So here was a huge and to me mystifying loss that God permitted me to undergo, the loss of the greatest help in this language that I was desperately striving to put down on paper. And God was not answering my whys. Before that year was over, all of the language material that I had accumulated was stolen in the days before Xerox or tape recorders. I had no copies of anything. Now why would God allow something like that to happen? We have the answers, don't we? We have all the answers we need. If God needs to give us further explanations when we get to heaven. I'm sure they'll be there, but I'm not sure that there will be any further ones necessary because once we see him, everything is going to be so simple and so clear that I can't imagine we'll have any questions to ask. People often talk about, well, the first question I'm going to ask God. And I kind of think that maybe those questions will just evaporate when we get there. They won't even be questions in our minds. But back to the, this purpose that we're going to be talking about, two things. We, we suffer for the sake of God's people and we suffer in order to have a share in his sufferings. And these two things happen to be illustrated by this one story. Um, years later, I told this story in a church in New Jersey. And we had had supper with the pastor and his wife the night before. And she had told me a long, very sad story about her divorce and many deep sorrows that had come into her life. And she had told me that it was my book, These Strange Ashes, the story of that first year when I was a missionary, when Makadio was murdered and I lost the language materials. She said it was that book that helped me through these experiences, which was amazing to me because if anybody had told me her story and said, now what book would you recommend for her? I would never have said These Strange Ashes. But she told me that that was the book that God used to speak to her through that. Well, the next day in, in this church, I told this story and she was, she was there. I mean, I told the story of my experience. And I always try to point out that I do not know all God's reasons. I know that he has taught me to know himself and he's done this and this and this through me, through this experience in me. But I do not know the final answer why God would allow Macario to be murdered and my language material to be gone, a whole year's work just down the drain, as it were. So again, I had tried to be as clear as I could on that point. And this dear woman, the same woman, came up to me afterwards and she said, now, Elizabeth, did you ever find out why God 
let those things happen to you. And I kind of smiled and I said, yes, I did, last night. And she looked blank. Last night? When? How? Well, I said, I was at your dinner table, don't you remember? And she still looked blank. And then finally, the truth dawned. She said, oh yeah. Yeah, your, your story helped me. Well, what does Paul say in 2 Corinthians 1? I think I read that earlier, read a part of it, but instead of verses 8 and 9, now look at uh, verses 3 and following. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the all-merciful Father, the God whose consolation never fails us. He comforts us in all our troubles so that we in turn may be able to comfort others in any trouble of theirs and to share with them the consolation we ourselves receive from God. As Christ's cup of suffering overflows and we suffer with him, so also through Christ our consolation overflows. If distress be our lot, it is the price we pay for your consolation, for your salvation. If our lot be consolation, it is to help us to bring you comfort and strength, strength to face with fortitude the same sufferings we now endure. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, for we know that if you have a part in the suffering, you have part also in the divine consolation. And who of us is not aware of the truth of those words? When somebody has been through exactly what you've been through, they're the person you're prepared to listen to. And if they've never suffered, at least as far as you know, they've never suffered, you don't want to hear that. Don't give me that stuff. Don't throw the Bible at me. I don't want to hear about it. You don't know what I'm going through. And Paul said, we've gone through this, and God has consoled us, and so now in our consolations, we are able to pass on to you in your sufferings the same consolation wherewith we ourselves have been consoled. Clearly, that's one of God's reasons. We are a body. We are members of a body, the sheep of his pasture, the sheep of a flock. And when one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. When one member can rejoice, all the members can rejoice with it. And this is what God has given us the privilege to do to console one another. This is something that to me is so powerful that I don't dare try to wing it. I want to read a passage from a book by Walter Chiswick called He Leadeth Me. He was in a Soviet labor camp for years and he describes life in the camps and it was painted to him he says in its blackest and bitterest details and it was pointed out to me how easily I could escape all that if I wanted to work for the NKVD. I was annoyed and then ashamed of my own decisiveness. Why couldn't I just stand up and say no? Instead I temporized. I took to playing a game of cat and mouse with the interrogator asking for time to think over his various proposals. This man of course was a Christian and they were they were determined to break him. He was given books on the history and philosophy of communism, 
and quizzed on the contents. He was glad to prolong the arguments and thereby postpone the need for a final decision. Then, he says, one day, the blackness closed in around me completely. Perhaps it was brought on by exhaustion, but I reached a point of despair. I was overwhelmed by the hopelessness of my situation. I knew that I was approaching the end of my ability to postpone a decision. I could see no way out of it. Yes, I despaired in the most literal sense of the word. And there just might be somebody in here today that feels that she has reached the point of despair. I lost all sense of hope. I saw only my own weakness and helplessness to choose either position open to me, cooperation or execution. I knew that I had gone beyond all bounds, had crossed over the brink into a fit of blackness I had never known before. It was very real, and I began to tremble. I had lost the last shreds of my faith in God. Recognizing that, I turned immediately to prayer in fear and trembling. I knew I had to seek immediately the God I had forgotten. God had not forgotten Walter Chiswick. Suddenly he was consoled by the thought of the Lord in Gethsemane. He too had known fear and weakness as he faced suffering and death. His not my will was an act of total self-surrender. And Chiswick said he was changed in that moment. I knew immediately what I must do, what I would do. And somehow I knew that I could do it. I knew that I must abandon myself entirely to the will of the Father and live from now on in this spirit of self-abandonment to God. And I did it. God's will was not hidden somewhere out there in the situations in which I found myself. The situations themselves were his will for me. Get that. Soviet labor camp, God's will. What he wanted for me was to accept these situations from his hands to let go of the reins and place myself entirely at his disposal. It was the grace God had been offering me all my life, but which I had never really had the courage to accept in full. And when I think of the testimony of Walter Chiswick and how it strengthened me, naturally I want to ask myself, but why do I need anybody's word other than God's. He has told me again and again that he will never leave me or forsake me. He has told me that he will be with me when through to fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. And when through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of sorrow will not overflow. He's, he's given me all these promises. He's told me that he will be with me in the hot fire, the deep river, and the valley of the shadow and yet I sometimes doubt him. And so, in his mercy, he brings along witness after witness after witness to confirm to me in the 20th century, in 20th century experience, his eternal, timeless word. And he offers to you that privilege. Will you accept this thing, whatever your thing is right now, that's hard, He's saying, will you accept this from me in order that you may become a little bit holier and have a little bit deeper influence in this world? 
Don't worry about how that's going to happen. Will you take this now? And that's why I urge you to be in prayer, asking God, what is it you're putting your finger on in my life here, Lord? What do you want me to do? And I'm sure that he does want you to trust him. He does want you to obey him, and he does want you to accept it. Okay, Lord, I'll take it. Now, that does not mean feeling good about it. If you could feel good about suffering, then suffering wouldn't be suffering, would it? Paul, while he still had this thorn sticking in him, whatever it was, was able to say, I will glory in my infirmities. In this sharp physical pain, I will glory in it. Why? So that the power of Christ will rest upon me. Because I know that when I am weak, then I am strong. And that's another one of these amazing biblical paradoxes. Strength comes out of weakness. Life comes out of death. You know that prayer of St. Francis. It is in forgiving that we are pardoned. It is in losing that we gain. It is in dying that we are born again to eternal life. So here it is in suffering that God, in his mercy, gives us the privilege of sharing in his suffering. And there are many scriptures on this, and we can't possibly go into all of them, but I certainly need to give you some of them so that you don't think this is some wild idea that Elizabeth Elliot made up all by herself. It says in Philippians 1, verse 29, For you have been granted the privilege not only of believing in Christ, but also of suffering for him. Now, lest your immediate response to that statement is, but I'm not suffering for Christ, not in the way Paul was. I'm not in prison because I preach the gospel. My suffering has nothing to do with that. Well, what you have been given, you have been given. If God gives you the privilege of being literally imprisoned because of something that you have done for Christ, that's God's business. Jesus was nailed to a cross because he had done the will of the Father, and it is believed that some of the disciples were also crucified, although that's not in the Bible. And certainly millions of Christians have been burned at the stake and thrown to the lions and all sorts of other things, literally for Christ's sake. But most of us have not. And most of us are not likely to. So are we excluded from the privilege of sharing in the sufferings of Christ? Are you lonely? That's suffering. Christ was lonely too. Nobody understood him. Even those that walked with him most intimately for three years, his disciples, they all forsook him and fled. Are you suffering physical pain? Christ knows the physical pain, and that was one of the things that I thought of when I had this horrible thing in my back. I was thinking, there is nobody in the world that can possibly know how this feels right now. I cannot, cannot explain to Lars how it feels. But God does. 
He knows. And some of you are suffering something you can't possibly talk about to anybody. He knows. I don't know what you're going through, but I know the one who knows. So he gives me this mysterious share in his sufferings. And there's a verse in Colossians. Colossians 1, 24. It is now my happiness to suffer for you. This is my way of helping to complete in my poor human flesh the full tale of Christ's afflictions still to be endured for the sake of the body, which is the church. Let me read that again. It is my happiness to suffer for you, and there's a paradox, isn't it? Happiness, suffering. This is my way of helping to complete in my poor human flesh the full tale of Christ's afflictions still to be endured for the sake of his body. In what sense can my afflictions ever be a help to the body? Now, I realize I have a special platform and a special privilege in being able to speak publicly and write books. But it's God's business, you know. I didn't imagine either of those things. I never sought them, never could have imagined if anybody had told me when I headed for the mission field that this is what I would end up doing. But God does have a place for every single one of us. And God does have a share that he offers to us in his sufferings. Now, how can I share? The first requirement is acceptance. And that came to me when I learned that my husband, Jim Elliott, was missing. It took us five days when five American missionaries went into the jungle, into a, tra a, a savage territory, to find out whether they were dead or alive. We were in contact by shortwave radio for a while, and then suddenly one of the contacts that we had expected did not materialize. And we knew that something had happened, we didn't know what it was. And immediately God brought to my mind the verses from Isaiah 43 2, from which this, the hymn that we sang, How Firm a Foundation, is taken. Isaiah 43 2 says, When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee, and through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned. Neither shall the flame kindle upon thee, for I am the Lord thy God. And I realized then that God was telling me not that I would be, that I would escape widowhood necessarily, but that he would be with me through the deepest water and the hottest fire. I will be with thee. And those five days, as you can imagine, were agonizing. And at the end of the five days, we learned that all five of these men had been speared to death. And God brought to my mind then a poem from F.W.H. Myers, part of which I had memorized. And the last stanza says, So through life, death, through sorrow, and through sinning, Christ shall suffice me for he hath sufficed. Christ is the end, for Christ was the beginning. Christ the beginning, for the end is Christ. And then I remembered Amy Carmichael's poem, In Acceptance Lieth Peace. 
And I would recommend to you that if you have never really accepted something that you can't change, and I'm not saying we have to accept all the bad things in our lives, some of them can and ought to be changed, but there are many things that we cannot change, and that is the time when we get down on our knees, lift up our empty hands and say, Lord, I don't like this, I did not choose this, I don't understand this, but I will, in the name of Jesus Christ, receive this. I will accept. It's just what Jesus did in Gethsemane, isn't it? First he said, Lord, if it's possible, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass. And that was a natural, human, perfectly right response. And then he said, if it's not possible, not my will, but thine be done. Acceptance. In acceptance lieth peace. And I believe it's a shortcut to peace. You don't have to go through years of misery. And modern psychology is always telling us that we have to work through all this stuff. You know, you've got to work through your anger. You've got to work it out. You've got to express it. That's not what my Bible says. My Bible says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and evil speaking be not worked through, put away, and be kind one to another. Now, acceptance does not mean that your suffering instantly stops and becomes fun. Not by a long shot. You may have to accept it again and again, and every day I have to accept things. Paul said, I die daily. The psalmist said, I die a hundred times daily. And that death is saying no to myself, yes to God. Not my will, thine be done. Thy kingdom come, whatever it takes. And Lord, help me to be faithful, to fulfill the place in your kingdom that you have given to me. This tiny share in Christ's sufferings, will you accept it? When the roast burns, when the washing machine quits working. I'm not suggesting that this is a huge spiritual issue, but it is a test of where your priorities are. Who is running your life? Is it yours or is it God's? Is it purposeless? Is it just chance? Does it mean absolutely nothing? Suffering is not for nothing. Trouble is always to get our attention and say, Lord, you know about the boss coming for dinner, Lord, I will accept this, and start singing. Try that. Start singing just out loud when something like that happens. A share in Christ's sufferings is the deepest mystery that I know anything about, and it transfigures my attitude toward the suffering. It's not a magic that makes it no suffering. You can't make suffering no suffering, but there is healing and it transfigures my whole attitude toward life. In that hymn that we read by William Cooper, that last stanza is directly taken from the passage in Habakkuk where he talks about if there's no, no cattle in the stalls, no figs on the, on the trees, no grapes on the vine, yet will I rejoice. It has nothing to do with how he feels about having no cattle and no figs and no grapes. We know how he would feel about that. 
you know, we get so hung up nowadays. Again, we're, we're constantly encouraged by modern psychology to pay a lot of attention to our feelings. And as far as I can figure out in the Bible, we're not supposed to pay any particular attention to our feelings. It's the will that matters, the will or the heart, as the Bible refers to the will. And he says, if this happens, everything falls to pieces, I will rejoice. And the psalmist said, at all times, I will praise the Lord. So I hope we can end on a note of joy, remembering that all of these things are not for nothing. God has a purpose in them, and ultimately they are going to be transfigured visibly in such a way so marvelous that you can't even imagine it. I think heaven is going to be so fantastically beyond your wildest imaginations that God couldn't give us any more hints about it than he's already given, otherwise we would never be able to keep our minds on our work. <laughs> you know, it's, he's holding surprises for us. My husband is here to say that time is up. Is that right? Well, I do want to close with a, a little poem that many of you probably do know, written by Grant Colfax Tuller. My life is but a weaving betwixt my God and me. I do not choose the colors. He worketh steadily. Sometimes he chooseth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly will God unfold the pattern and explain the reason why. For the dark threads are as needful in the pattern he has planned as the threads of gold and silver in the weaver's skillful hand. God bless you. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms.